electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq market site in the heart of New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. So here's what's on tap tonight. The Waller warning. The Fed governor suggesting the central bank will be modest in its rate cuts this year. His comments sending stocks dropping and yields on the and the dollar rising. So should investors brace for more hawkishness out of the Fed? And what will it mean for markets? Plus, grounded. Shares of Spirit Airlines closing at a record low as its merger with JetBlue gets called back to the gate. The impact it's having on other airlines and how to trade that industry. And then later on, gold stocks losing their luster as the miners see their worst day since February. A semi-standout with AMD trading close to record highs. And then cannabis stocks get a green light. So is it time to get into some of these names? We'll debate all of those topics coming up. I'm Dominic Chu in tonight for Melissa Lee coming to you live from Studio B at the Nasdaq market site on the desk tonight. Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, Guy Adami and Rebecca Patterson, former chief strategist at Bridgewater Associates. We will start with that sea of red on Wall Street today. The Dow dropping nearly 400 points at its lows, though it closed, as you can see, well off those levels. The S&P 500 and Nasdaq also down with the tech heavy index ending a six-day winning streak. The move's coming as the benchmark 10-year Treasury note yield jumped back above the 4% mark. This after Fed Governor Christopher Waller sparked some uncertainty over where interest rates could be going. Waller saying cuts are likely to happen this year, but indicated the Fed should take its time in bringing those rates down. It counters the street's hopes for more aggressive rate cuts throughout the course of this year. So how seriously should investors take Waller's warning? Guy, let's start with you. Well, great to have you here, Tom. Thanks for filling in. I'll say this. People should be actually happy, I think, that Fed rate cuts are not going to happen as soon as uh, the market anticipates. Quite frankly, it's when you start cutting rates is when you have to start being worried about the market. But to answer your question, I think they should be worried. I think so much has been priced in on the rate cut front. And then you start seeing things that say, wait a second, maybe we're getting a bit ahead of ourselves. So there should be a concern. And the move in 10-year yields, I think, sort of backs that up, Dom. I mean, Dan, the whole idea that the rate cut picture We've heard so many times now that people are saying, you know, investors, traders are over their skis with regard to forecasting for this. How over their skis are they right now? And did this do anything to really solve By the way, great metaphor that? on a snowy day in Yes, New York. exactly. I know right. what you're doing, Don. I, uh, I think it's a place to, to hang say, your hat. Right? If we just go back four months, that move from 4% to 10-year to 5% and then back to the 4%, that investors have been turned around on both sides, right? And the fact of the matter is, here we are, the S&P 500 is basically unchanged on the year, right, after having a pretty good year last year, closing very near all-time highs, given all the uncertainty about expected cuts. So when you look at just seeing the movement today in the Treasury market and yields up 10 basis points, I think, off of those lows, you say to yourself that investors are not prepared for a push out of that March cut, which I think the CME Fed funds tracker is pricing still about a 65 percent 
probability of that happening. So if those cuts get pushed out, what does that mean for equities where they are right now? What does it mean for S&P 500 earnings if we have inflation start to pick back up a little bit, if we have uh, supply chains disrupted by what's going on in the Red Sea and, and some other geopolitical hotspots around the world? Crude oil seems to be found a little bit of a bottom here in around 70, that sort of thing. So to me, I think the only thing mispriced right now are really equities and expectations for double-digit percent EPS growth this year. We were talking for the longest time, Rebecca, about this notion traders and investors all across Wall Street had metaphorically declared victory over inflation and that that was the reason why interest rates were moving the way that they were. Are there signs in the commodities market, signs elsewhere that maybe inflation shouldn't be declared dead just yet? Well, I think to your point, if things worsen in the Red Sea or the Middle East generally, and that affects perceptions around oil supply and freight prices, transportation prices, both of those things are risks. And Waller even mentioned that in passing today. Um, So certainly there is a risk that way. The market has been pricing in too many rate cuts, in my opinion, for quite some time. I think it's still mispriced. Maybe if inflation continues to trend down, we get 325 basis point cuts, but 150 basis points of cuts this year is egregious. And and Waller and others have been trying to walk that back. It's so interesting to me that the the derivatives market, the Fed funds futures, just refuses to shift on that. Um, So that is a headwind. But the other piece of the puzzle we have to watch is the consumer. Last year, the Fed's tightening, but equities still did well, broadly, not all of them, broadly, because consumption was so strong. So there's two legs of the stool here to watch. Not a very sturdy stool, but you know what I'm saying. If the consumer can stay resilient, even if Fed funds doesn't come down that fast, it might not be a bad year for stocks. But you really do need the resilient, moderating consumer and inflation that continues to trend if we're going to see double-digit EPS growth. Tim, I mean the fourth quarter. Very much about mega-cap technology, media, and telecom. That so-called Magnificent Seven Mm -hmm. really taking off to end the year. And a lot of that was because interest rates were falling from their highs Mm -hmm. during that span. What do you make of this idea that mega cap tech, including Microsoft, which hit a record high today and NVIDIA hit a record high today? Why are they outperforming still, given the rate uncertainty picture? I, I just think it's a comfortable place to have, for, even if you believe a broader uh, equal weighted S&P is going to rally that industrials and value large cap is worth owning, you want to own the mega cap tech stocks. It's a question of do you own 27, 28 percent of it or do you own 20, do you own 23, are you underweight? I mean, that that to me is the debate. It's not do I not own them this year? And, and you're, you're talking about Microsoft. It's also the same day that Apple tested the 200 day to the downside on a day when, you know, it looks like there's not going to be a lot of support for them in the courts on, on some of these uh, uh, at least antitrust dynamics around the Apple store. But, you know, back to the Waller comments, and Rebecca brought it up on our call. And I, I just think you know, he kind of highlighted that this time is different. And I know you hear that all the time. But, but without an economic shock, you know, this is different. There's a, there's a reason why the Fed has jumped in as aggressively as they have. And this moment in time in terms of inflation and fighting inflation is very different. Therefore, um, Dan pointed out, we went from 80 to 65 on Fed funds on a March easing. Uh, We're not going to get five cuts. We're not going to get six cuts. And if we do, we're all running for the hills. So it does get back to earnings. And it does get back to an earnings season that really is about to start taking off. And if we're going to get 11, 12 percent EPS growth in the S&P in 24, um, it's probably going to need the mega cap tech stocks to do something. And Microsoft, I think, is best positioned for that. Guy, we're at this early, early stage of the earnings season so far. 
Do you feel as though the market is ready for the expectations that have been set forth in terms of where we will see earnings growth, not just this quarter, but in the rest of 2024? In other words, are fundamental factors going to help power this market? Are companies going to make more money? And will people buy more in stock because companies make more money? You better hope so. I don't think it's going to happen. I mean, so much... So many of the stocks that we've seen make these moves all been predicated on multiple expansion, which is fine if these companies grow into it. But, for example, we've said it 100 times on the show. Microsoft might be one of the three most important companies in the world, without question. Trades at 30 times next year's numbers on maybe 12% EPS growth, the 12% revenue growth. You tell me. That's gotten itself very expensive very quickly. They report at the end of the month. So... Even the Apple, with the downgrades you saw in terms of valuation, that's starting to come to fruition as now. So the market better hope these earnings come in, because if they don't, there's a long way to go on the downside. So really interesting point you just made there, guys. So Microsoft just overtook Apple as the largest market cap company. It doesn't mean a whole heck of a lot other than the fact that we track that sort of stuff. I think it's kind of interesting. Apple's down nearly 10% from its recent all-time highs. Tim's point, it just hit a technical level. The sentiment couldn't be worse. You had all of those downgrades. You have a product announcement or this release that's coming that nobody's excited about. Can you remember the last time no one was excited about a product from Apple? So the sentiment guy, is really poor. I mean, you have to ask Guy that because he's, he's rarely excited. Well, you know, it's funny. <laughs> The, the really, clock app came out <laughs> recently. Yeah. And I finally got to him on his iPhone 4. Um, but my point is the sentiment couldn't be worse, right? both investors and the street. The flip side of that is Microsoft. It's making a new all-time high. It's trading at valuations. He's talking about if they don't come through with some of these generative AI products, or at least the monetization and the way people expect them to, you could have a big disappointment. So those are the things that I'm really keyed on, especially when you consider we're losing components of the MAG-7 one by one. We lost Tesla. Tesla's a disaster right now. The fundamentals are bad. It's down 20%. Apple, the jury's still out. We don't know right now. But China's a problem. And I saw a report over the weekend that Apple is discounting their phones in China. That never happens. So we just lost two. So now we got the Mag 5. We're going to have to come up with something different. All right. So, so first of all, for, for the China story and Apple, you know, it's been pointed out that it wasn't an across-the-board price cut overall, that this is a promotional thing for the Chinese Lunar New Year that's happening and that they go back up. It's kind of like, you know, Black Friday or whatever else. So that's one thing to watch. I'd like to go to the other end of the spectrum, though, from Apple, which is why small cap stocks, Tim, took a beating way more than the rest of the market did. And what does that say about the expectation for not just economic growth, but the rate picture as well. Because small cap stocks are as interest rate sensitive as anybody. And and to me, they are a sign of growth. In fact, historically, when I've tried to hedge things like emerging markets and growthier things with that also get concerned by rate shocks, I often use the IWM. So it's it's hard for me to get excited about small caps in 24, especially in a world where I think the economy, you know, no matter what it does, whatever economic term we're going to apply to it, I don't think it's going to do the numbers it did in 23. Um, and, and, And therefore, I don't think small cap are going to outperform, except for the fact that people want them to outperform, that we saw uh, a month and a half of outperformance, which which was very important for uh, the market. But, you know, back to what's going to work. I still think what worked last year uh, for the for the most part is going to be critical in 24. And today, with all this bad stuff going on, 
And I realize you can highlight it and say, well, NVIDIA and AMD and, you know, had there's some specific reasons, a couple upgrades and whatnot. But semiconductors made all time highs and new relative highs against the S&P. And this is after a ferocious run of the last part of the year. So to start the year um, with rates at one month highs and have the S&P effectively flat on the year after a ferocious two month rally, unlike any we've seen. I think that's not a bad show for equities here. All right. Speaking of rates, let's take it down to the bank stocks now, because broadly speaking, they were lower today. Morgan Stanley losing more than 4% after its fourth quarter results came in. Goldman Sachs remained a relative bright spot, up about a half a percent or so to end the trading day as well. Today also marked the deadline for public comments on the Fed's proposed changes to bank regulations in the wake of that Silicon Valley bank collapse last spring. The proposal would raise capital requirements for banks with at least $100 billion in assets. But Rebecca, you see cause for concern if those changes take effect, because maybe or not, it's not just about the massive banks out there. No, not at all. I mean, what these regulations do is they get a much bigger swath of banks that are going to have to increase the capital they hold. And so the risk is that you get, as Michelle Bowman, Governor Bowman of the Fed put it, a possible cliff effect that you get banks that are just under this $100 billion in assets mark who either have to shrink their business, so that's not good for the small businesses right. borrowing, or there's going to be mergers. They're going to need to get bigger so they can get economies of scale that helps spread out all these compliance costs, regulatory costs that they're encouraging. So I think that you know the regulatory environment for banks right now is difficult. It's particularly difficult for the regional and smaller and community banks because they just don't have the staff or the funds to pay to make sure they can stay on top of these regulations, and it's gonna it's gonna hamper their businesses. I'm not saying we shouldn't be safe. Of course we should, but it feels like these regulations aren't as tailored as they could be or should be. The small banks, Rebecca, they've been talked about by some folks as a, a catch-up trade. There's been a lot of focus on the J.P. Morgans, the Bank of Americas, the cities, the money center banks out there, and the massive ones, and maybe some undercover banks have been left behind. That was a potential source of alpha. Do you think it's still the case? We're no, Smid banks. No, I, no. I am. I I was cautious last year on them. I'm still cautious. You know, we had a big run up in the fourth quarter, basically on the Fed pivot hopes, lower interest costs, reducing liabilities for these banks. But what we're hearing from Waller is that that's not going to happen as quickly as people want. And then at the same time, we have this additional regulatory burden that's coming on. Um, the smaller banks, I think, are going to continue to struggle till we truly get in that easing cycle. And please, Lord, let us have a, co a consumer that's resilient. That's what the small banks need. And until the small banks really stabilize, the small businesses get hurt because most of the small businesses are borrowing from smaller banks. They're all tied together. Uh, Dan, there's been a tailwind over the last few months, maybe even several months now. We had talked for a long time about the inversion of the yield curve, but specifically between two year and 10 years, oh, a percent or more to the inverted to the downside. It's not even close to that today. It's been uninverting pretty quickly. It's been steepening, so to speak. Yeah. Is that though a good tailwind for that bank trade? Do you think it could work if we see interest rates start to behave more normally? Well, I think this speaks to what 
Rebecca was saying earlier, is that the two-year got more in line with what the Fed Fund's expectations were, right? And that's why we're seeing that re-steepening. But if you look at the 10-year, which is probably more receptive or, or, I mean, sensitive to what growth expectations are, it's kind of stuck here in around 4%. And so, like, to me, I, you know, Guy has been kind of detailing this for a while now. I think you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. If the 10-year started to fall that much lower than it got to, what, 3.8% or something like that a few weeks ago, what is that saying about growth? Um, but if we were to see the, the, the two-year kind of rise again, that means that we're kind of pushing out rate cut expectations. What does that say about inflation? So I just think we're in a period where we're going to probably not see that thing back on the other side of the inversion. And uh, Guy's been tracking this. It's going to be the longest inversion in how long? If we make it to February, it'll be the longest since we started recording the data in terms of the inversion. It's not The inversion is the warning sign. It's the re-steepening is when you have to start to worry. And that's where we are now. I mean, historically, if you go back and look, that's when markets actually sort of take it on the chin. And in terms of the banks, I'm with Rebecca on this one. If small and regional banks are the lifeblood for small businesses, and if small businesses are slowing down, we were talking about that New York Fed manufacturing number, which was a disaster of the magnitude of nine times worse than what the street was expecting. That's a problem. And if that's a problem, that means the consumer's going to be in trouble. And if the consumer's in trouble, that by definition means the economy's in trouble. All right. Real, yes. real quick on positioning in banks, by the way. I don't think it's very helpful either. I mean, I was looking at the Bank of America fund manager survey, which is very useful uh, to track both positioning sentiment and whatnot. And banks are now an overweight. And so you went from this period where everybody hated banks to, uh, look, an environment that should have given banks a chance to catch up and 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 may still again a a fed that's not overly aggressive and maybe uh, gets somewhere in between what fed funds are doing and what really will happen should be good for banks um, and again normalizing uh, the rate environment i think everything from mortgages to consumer credit um, uh, that's interesting but again back to positioning positioning right now in banks is not your friend in that i actually think people are overweight all right speaking of consumer and health They do spend money on travel and leisure. We know that much. So let's talk a little bit about Spirit Airlines. Those shares plummeted today with shares nearly slashed in half because a federal judge is blocking JetBlue's acquisition of the budget airline, arguing the deal is anti-competitive and would hurt who else? Consumers. So CNBC's Phil LeBeau has the latest here. Phil, this was one that was going to get a lot of scrutiny to begin with. Why even go through with this and what happens now? Those are all the questions that were asked of JetBlue and Spirit when they agreed to this in July of 2022. Well, here we are. And the judge has said, look, I'm looking out for those Spirit customers who like the low cost model. So as you take a look at this deal, it basically the judge was saying this is not not good for cost conscious flyers. Both JetBlue and Spirit are now assessing what's our next step. Do we want to go through with an appeal? That's another four to five months with no guarantee that you may have a different outcome. But it does also raise the question, what happens with the airlines away from the big four? And by the big four, I'm talking about Delta, American, Southwest, and United. They've got two-thirds of the market in the U.S. And then you have Alaska at 6.4%. If JetBlue and Spirit had merged and it went through, they would have had 10.5% of the market. As it is now... You have two companies that are looking at what their next options are. By the way, JetBlue's breakup fee, $70 million. If we take a look at the stocks, going back to the proposed merger date back in uh, July of 2022, the reason Spirit is off so much, Dom, is because now there's talk about, hey, is it possible that these guys might ultimately file for bankruptcy and then liquidate? Helene Becker from Cowan brought up that possibility. Quickly also take a look at shares of Alaska and Hawaiian. This is a proposed $1.9 billion merger. 
Alaska and Hawaiian both say, look, our merger is different, different uh, dynamics involved here, a different market. We still feel good that this deal will go through. And I also want to switch gears and I'll talk a little bit about Boeing. Here's the latest. We're getting a lot of questions today about this. The MAX 9 inspections. Remember, there are 40 of the grounded planes that the FAA said, look, we want to do further inspections here. We believe most of those inspections have been done. The question now is when do we get some kind of results, if you will, from the FAA. An independent advisor was named by Boeing to do a quality control check on the company. He'll report directly to CEO Dave Calhoun. And this is in addition to the FAA planning its own audit of Boeing's manufacturing processes. That prompted Wells Fargo to downgrade shares of Boeing. It said in its note today, Matthew Akers, the analyst saying, given BA's track record and great incentive for the FAA to find problems, we think the odds of a clean audit are low. And remember, as you take a look at shares of Boeing, Forget about a lot of the noise that's out there about whether or not there are some quality control issues. And that's not just noise, but for investors, what you care about is the process of manufacturing maxes. You're at 38 a month right now. Boeing's target is to get up to 50 a month. That drives cash flow, and that's the key to shares moving higher. That's why the stock is now hovering at about $200. Also, quickly take a look at shares of Spirit. Continues to be under pressure. Spirit Aero Systems builds the Max 9 door plug. Another rough day today, down more than 4%. Dom? All right, that's a lot to digest. Phil LeBeau is tracking all of it. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Dan Nathan, oh. which, which do you, where do you want to start? There's well, too much to go over Tim, here. I really want to get Tim's take on Boeing here because this is a name that you, 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 know, you know so well, and you've seen these cycles, right, over the last five years now. You know what I mean? So yep. this one, are you surprised, like, on a day like today, off the news like today? We really thought that 220 level would be something from a valuation standpoint would make some sense? Well, I, I think on sentiment and certainly on consumer sentiment, uh, even though they're not the ones buying these these planes. And, and I think the, the story here is, and the journal had a really interesting article today about how, and it's not a new concept, that, that Boeing's been outsourcing um, for years now, um, key components, and then rebuilding these planes. And that was an attempt to save money. And that the, ultimately, the sum of the parts really don't change, and that this is one of the biggest problems. So back to the MAX 37, um, whether it's the 9, whether it's the 8, that was the, the, you know, the horrific problems of a few years back. Um, this is a story where there's no question that the FAA does have, I mean, the Wells Fargo downgrade makes some sense to me in terms of probabilities. Um, I still think this is a free cash flow story. My inclination as an investor um, is to wait this one out. I, I actually believe this company is actually moving in the right direction in terms of free cash flow. Uh, and what was going to be $12.50 a share in free cash flow by 25, maybe that's 26. But uh, you've been given a significant discount before this event. This stock was on the move. And I realized this is a big moment. This is a very significant change. And the dynamics, again, around manufacturing may have to change for Boeing at a cost, at a cost to free cash flow. You probably don't need to chase it here, but at a time where people are looking for, for interesting stories that I think are in companies that aren't going anywhere in the long term, this is one. All right, Guy, I'm going to stick with this Boeing because we've opened it up here for one, one conversation. Aerospace and defense is what Boeing does. Mm -hmm. Aerospace is the focus of what's happening with the FAA in this. The defense side of things is perhaps you could argue in a very good macro tailwind, given what we're seeing around the world right now. Is there going to be an emphasis at some point for investors on that defense side of the business? And if so, could it ever come close to overcoming 
the PR. I know what he side. did. I, I, mean, I mean, he's clearly the the watching fast money, yeah, tailwinds. I mean, I mean, we, tailwinds. Had that, we had a very similar yeah. conversation <laughs> when this first happened in terms of their defense. Their defense revenues are probably, Tim knows this exactly, but I'll say 38% now of overall revenue, fast approaching probably 50 50 with that aerospace portion, which is a good thing, by the way. And this 200 level that we got to today, we did it on seven times normal volume. The report at the end of the month, we also filled a gap to the downside that we created back in November. So a lot of reasons to start to get interested in the stock, I think. I understand all the headwinds and all the um, headline risk you have, but at a some point, valuation matters, and I think we're getting close. All right, can I? I'm going to bring up one more topic here, which is the Spirit JetBlue deal. I'm sure you guys around the table have flown JetBlue before. It, it has really shed its reputation as a budget airline. I was just going to say that I mean, too. they have a, I flew one cross-country that had a legit first-class cabin. Yep. Lay flat beds deal, and man. everything else. The ticket prices are pretty much in line with Delta, American, United, and everybody else, at least to SFO, right? I went to go see my folks. This spirit deal, if, I mean, maybe there's a concern from the judge and that's legitimate. If they were to take this over, does this then become just another competitor airline, the likes of which United, American, Delta, and everybody else kind of operates with right now? I wonder, Tim, is that the reason why? Well, I, I think I think you're right. I think JetBlue fits into into that segment right now. I don't think there's any bargains on JetBlue unless you happen to get it on a cold day in wherever where they're not flying in the south. You know, but um, I actually think sorry, it would be the opposite of that as I think about this. Um, I, I, I think ultimately airlines get back to a lot of cyclicality, both in terms of how they're run and probably in terms of the focus on the business. And we certainly know the good news for airlines is that the expensive. So the, the premium, the transcontinental and the first class um, that stuff that's actually picking up, it's all we hear about from United and Delta. Um, that's, to me, as an investor, what I care more about. But uh, what we always care about with airlines is that they run their businesses as efficiently as possible. And they're guilty of, of mostly not doing that, especially when times get good. And that's when they go bad. All right. All right. Coming up, guys, the trouble trade in China right now. Stocks dropping across the board as major ETFs hit new multi-year lows. How the Taiwan election result and a rare tech giant price cut is impacting that trade coming up next. Plus, AMD ripping higher as the artificial intelligence trade shows no signs of slowing down. But can the semi-surge keep up the pace? We'll debate that when Fast Money returns. We're back in two. You're watching Fast Money here on CNBC. We'll be right back. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.
Welcome back to Fast Money. Chinese stocks are dropping across the board in the wake of Taiwan's election results. The ruling Democratic Progressive Party, DPP, winning a third straight win despite warnings from Beijing to reject their candidate. Major ETFs, including the FXI, the MMCHI, the EWH, all hitting new at least 52-week lows. Meanwhile, the head of the International Monetary Fund warning that China needs reforms to open the economy and halt, quote-unquote, significant growth declines in 2024. Rebecca, do this weekend's elections change the investment thesis for, broadly speaking, owning Chinese equities? No. Okay. (laughs) I think China's problems right now are man-made. They're domestic. Taiwan is clearly very important, and it's a risk we're all watching every single day now. But what's happening in Taiwan is not going to significantly affect China's economy or stock market. What's going on with China right now is the leadership there. Think of them like a duck, calm above the surface, but the legs increasingly paddling frantically below the surface. There's speculation from a Bloomberg article today that they're going to announce a trillion renminbi ultra-long bond. They've only done this four times in history. This is a panic move if they do it. Um, They are giving guidance, again, according to the media, that you can't sell stocks. They're telling local players that. So this is, and you're seeing them on the road. They're at Davos. They're here on the East Coast. They're saying, please come back with your foreign direct investment. They're worried. But what they're doing doesn't help the domestic economy because it's not touching the consumer. It's increasing supply. That's it. So it's deflationary right now. It's not going to change what they need to change. Tim, what's the overriding narrative right now? Is it still the wage war against big tech Chinese government? Is it the property crisis, Evergrande and everybody else crisis? Yes, um, yes, yes, and yes. Well, um, by the way, when when, when, when Rebecca was giving her her duck metaphor, I thought we were going to go if it walks like a duck and talks (laughs) like a duck. I mean, China's, you know, it's a and it kind of works here because we know what we're getting with China. The FXI, which is effectively Chinese SOE, state operating enterprises, big banks. It's not the sexy high tech stuff. I mean, it's it's performed as poorly. Um, K-Web's a little more high-flying, and there's some components to it that we talk about all the time, as we should, in terms of BABA and Tencent. But um, I, I just feel that sentiment and dynamics in China are so poor. We know what the economy is structurally challenged by. I do think Evergrande's a very, very big deal. And I do think we've even had a chance to reflect on China as Japan goes to fresh all-time highs after 37 years and understand what a credit crisis can do uh, to an economy and how long it takes to get through that and past that. Even though I've always said China can paper over a lot more problems than anybody else. All right. There's a lot more to come in here on Fast Money. So here's what's coming up next. You gotta see AMD. Shares surging as the AI trade stays front and center. So can semi-stocks keep pumping your portfolio? That's next. Plus, let's make a deal. In biotech, after a record year for M&A in the space, we're looking at who could get scooped up in 2024. The names our next guest is keeping an eye on. Ahead, you're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. 
Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. Shares of AMD topping the tape today. More than you can see, they're 8% in the regular session, hitting its highest level since November of 2021. Nearing, by the way, an all-time high. Wall Street is still bullish on the impact AI is going to have on this space, with analysts at Barclays raising their price target on AMD to 200 bucks a share, nearly 26% higher than the close today. NVIDIA also, by the way, jumping more than 3%. Dan, what's the take here? Is AI a runaway freight train? Well, I think a lot of investors looking back to last year and watching NVIDIA and the revisions that we saw there, the tremendous demand for it, the lack of supply. And so they know that a lot of these uh, buyers of these chips are looking to kind of um, diversify away from NVIDIA. They might be looking for cheaper prices too. AMD's chip, this MI300, is supposedly doing pretty well. And I think one of the analysts called just said, listen, it could be an additional $5 billion of incremental revenue this year on top of what they were expecting, maybe $3 billion. So this is what we saw last year with NVIDIA, investors tripping over each other. I'll just say this, for the stock to go and, and go up 8% today, very near an all-time high before we've even seen the guidance or anything like that, we know that Lisa Sue gave some very rosy outlooks about TAM, I want to say about a month or so ago. That's why you're seeing a move like this. But if they disappoint for any reason when they report in a week or two, you know, you're going to have the stock down 8% like that. Guy is the relatively safer way to play artificial intelligence, and I say relatively, is it Microsoft yeah, as well, opposed to NVIDIA or AMD? I was going to say Micron, which at least you can sort of wrap your head around, maybe in terms of valuation, although that's become a commoditized company as well, so valuation sometimes doesn't matter. Microsoft is probably the safer one, yes, but again, as I mentioned earlier in the show, Microsoft isn't cheap here either. AMD has now gotten itself up to 40 times next year's numbers, which may be reasonable. They may grow into that. But if our crack staff and EC can put up a longer-term chart, you will see that the levels that we just traded at today are the same levels we topped out at, I think it was November of 2021. So as oversold as we were in earnings last quarter, that's how overbought I think we are now. All right, so from the tech trade to biotech, coming up on the show, is there a next big deal in biotech? We saw a huge amount of M&A in just the last year, and we all know, want to know, rather, Who's next to get bought up? Michael Yee of Jeffries joins us to lay out the names that he's watching and who could be primed for the picking. So don't go anywhere. That interview is coming up next right here on Fast Money. Welcome back to Fast Money. Stocks sinking to kick off the shortened trading week. The Dow dropping more than 230 points. The S&P leading those losses down nearly four-tenths of a percent. And the Nasdaq also in the red, snapping a six-day winning streak of its own. And by the way, gold miners getting hit pretty hard today. The GDX ETF, which measures the miners, down more than 4%, its worst day since last February. Barrett Gold, one of the bigger losers in that group, down nearly 10% year-to-date. What do you make of the gold miners trade, Guy? Higher rates, higher dollar, lower gold. Knee-jerk reaction is, you know what, we've been fooled many times in the commodity. We're not going to do it again. If you notice, the underlying miners have not participated. Now I think people are saying gold's lost here. It's not going to get through those previous highs. I am not one of those people. I still think the commodity is going to prove itself, and I think gold miners are cheap here. However, today obviously doesn't tell that tale. All right. Meanwhile, over in pharma, companies were sitting on $130 billion in cash at the end of 2023. And our next guest thinks that could propel a new round, a wave of M&A activity this year. Let's bring in Michael Yee of Jefferies. He's the firm's senior biotech analyst, tracks all of these names, names we've never heard of but could make it big. So, Michael, last year was very much about the AI of healthcare. 
which was GLP-1 obesity slash diabetes. Is that still the case in 2024? I think that we still have a way to go on GLP-1, and I still think you're going to see a wave of strategic deals in that space and related spaces, uh, metabolism and cardiovascular. So, yes, I think that's still a way to go. The drugs just barely launched, so we got some time. All right, so this is the total addressable market argument, right, that this is a huge pie or it could potentially be one. Who's primed? to take advantage of it next if, hypothetically, it is no longer one that people want to go with, with, say, Eli Lilly or or Novo Nordisk? Sure. We have been very bullish on Amgen. We have said this time and time again, and I think this is going to be a huge breakout in 24 and 25 if they have great data with a potentially monthly or possibly quarterly maintenance drug. We're going to get huge data at the end of 2024 on that. I think the stock would be great if that works. There's also smaller companies in the space as well, like Scholar Rock, SRRK, and Structure, uh, 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 GPCR. So a lot there, uh, but Amgen's really our favorite. All right. We talked about this idea of M&A in 2024 and the vast amounts of cash on the sidelines from these companies. What types of companies, if it's not GLP-1, could be the target more so of biotech M&A this coming year? So I think that if you listen to all the comments last week, we had a great note out about that. Uh, You have a bunch of companies saying that, uh, first, metabolic, cardiovascular, and all the areas related to obesity, if you think about the hundreds of billions of dollars of cash coming in and the sales forces, that everything related to that is going to be important. So that's why we just talked about some of those plays. I would say that um, in cardiovascular, names like cytokinetics make a lot of sense. I know that's been in the news recently with three different players looking at that. And then also in neurology, uh, this is perhaps the second biggest unmet need as it relates to Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, schizophrenia. You saw two deals, Abby and Bristol, both acquiring a schizophrenia drug in just the last eight weeks. There's quite a competitive situation going on. So if they're investing there, I think that says there's going to be more around the corner to leverage on that. So neurology companies as well. And then last, I would say oncology, always the play, names like Immunicore, IMCR, with approved drugs and a huge toolbox. So a lot to see in 2024. All right. So it's not just GLP-1, it's oncology and neurology and everything else. Michael Yee, thank you very much. We'll see you soon, sir. Let's trade it. Rebecca, what do you think? Is biotech the place to be in 2024? Well, I think there's a couple things beyond what you all just discussed that can support it, at least factors. One, even if the Fed doesn't cut rates as much or as quickly as expected, the fact that we have steady rates, we're not hiking anymore, very likely. Um, That provides a little more clarity for CEOs who might be thinking about deals. We heard that from Peter Orzag on your air this morning from Davos, um, from Lazard. And then secondly, the AI theme, obviously, tech, biotech, these are areas that can really, really leverage AI. So I think you have two tailwinds, again, in addition to a lot of cash on the sidelines looking to go to work that could support the sector. Could be other headwinds out there that the other guys here on the desk might want to highlight. But I would bring up those two points. Real quick, look at IBB. Look at the level it's trading at. We topped out here, I think, January of 23-ish. But IBB, if you want to play the ETF, Vertex, Regeneron, Amgen, and I think Gilead are 30% of it. Gilead, to me, if you want to go individual stocks, looks really interesting here. I think it's about to break out to the upside. All right, coming up after the break, guys, lighting up. Pot stocks are puffing higher today after a new research report 
out of the FDA. So what green shoots could that open for the industry coming up? I'm trying, guys. <laughs> and delivery gone wrong. Why the chartmaster Carter Worth thinks it might be time to exit two transportation heavyweight names. We've got more Fast Money coming up after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Pot stocks on fire today after the FDA released a scientific review that found cannabis meets the criteria for reclassification as a lower risk drug. Top names like Tilray, Curaleaf, Canopy Growth, all up more than you can see there, just anywhere from 5 to 10, 12 percent. Tim, this is more detailed than what we've seen before from regulators. Is this something where people can actually say, all right, maybe this is a good sign as opposed to a head fake like we've seen in the past. Well, here's what, why this news is important. First of all, if you reschedule cannabis, it means that punitive taxation for these companies, uh, this would unlock maybe 100, 150 billion. And I, it's, a, it's a big, big ask there because it's still kind of unknown. It's a game changer in terms of profitability and free cash flow for an industry that frankly needs it. Um, it's, it's what the news on Friday was, is we actually got a chance to see a 252 page document by the FDA. We knew that they'd written this document and done this research and made a recommendation, but we now got a chance to see it. And it basically gives a very strong endorsement why cannabis not only has medicinal value uh, and it's less likely to have abuse than significantly other more mainstream drugs, but also the dynamics around the history here and that, you know, frankly, is a bit of a mea culpa. It really feels as if this is different. And it really, it goes back, it's a history lesson. And I think the the dynamic for the industry back to the stocks, and you mentioned a bunch of stocks, uh, really, the, the U.S. stocks, the U.S. multinationals, uh, uh, multi-state operators are the ones that I think should most be in the focus here. And I do think as we think about the price action and I take, say, a GTI, which is the largest name, by the way, full disclosure in my cannabis ETF, uh, that's a name that's now above those early September highs when this news broke. And again, the history here is this recommendation came out in late August. It drove the sector into a frenzy as it should. Then you saw, as we were waiting for information, as they usually do, without new capital in the space, a lot of the stocks traded lower. A handful of them, first of all, now trade well above those euphoria highs. I just think that the price action on top of the news flow, they match. And, and actually, the sector now is, I think, setting new foundation for a rally from here. I think this is great news, no matter when it happens. All right, guys, coming up on the show, trouble in the transports. Is now the time to fade the FedEx and ditch UPS trades? We'll bring in the chart master himself for the technical tale right after this. More Fast Money is back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Trouble in the transports. FedEx and UPS dropping today. Underperforming the broader market. The chart master says there could be a lot more turmoil ahead in transportation, and that now, now is the time to sell both of these names. Carter Worth of Worth Charting joins us now. Take us through why this is important, why you're so bearish, and what does it mean for the broader story of the market? Sure. Thanks, Don. I mean, what we know, and before we look at any tables or charts, is that FedEx has been a great winner, um, and UPS has been a big loser. But the winner, FedEx, is starting to roll, and the loser, the laggard, has come roaring back to life, and that is a problem. So this table depicts the one-year performance, FedEx uh, having almost tripled the performance of all industrials, and UPS, of course, down versus the industrial sector. Let's look at that not in table form, but in chart form, and the lines uh, are what they are. So the issue is, 
what's the problem? FedEx winning, UPS lagging with coming to life. But let's look at the individual charts and really uh, sort of unpack it. If we look at FedEx, again, it's almost doubled, 140 to 280. And that heavy volume drop and gap of about three weeks ago, bad news, and now starting to roll, so exhibiting very poor relative strength. Look at, by contradistinction, UPS. It's the exact opposite. It has rallied sharply some 25 30% uh, off its lows of four months ago. But that's just it. It's rallied to a very difficult level where overhead supply comes into play. So I don't like the winner that's rolling or the laggard that snapped back. And now for fun, let's do the following final uh, chart. This is a two panel. What this is, is FedEx and UPS um, as though they were one security, plotted equal weighted as a basket on top. And then the relative performance of that two stock basket to the S&P. And so while the two stocks as an aggregate are up over the past 14, 16 months, the relative performance of the S&P continues to deteriorate. These are important, economically sensitive companies, and I don't think it a particularly good message for Main Street or for the market. Picture is worth a thousand words. Carter Worth, thank you very much. We'll see you soon. Uh, Guy. Yes, sir. This is an interesting point that Carter brings up here about the relative underperformance. FedEx problems have been FedEx specific for a long time. UPS is a little bit of a different story here. And quickly, technically, UPS since January of 22 has made a series of lower lows and lower highs. This 155 level, if you have a longer term chart, you will see this is critical support. People look at FedEx and say at 10 times next year's numbers, it's cheap by almost two, three turns from UPS. That's true, but valuation is never the reason to be in or out of these stocks. Neither one of them are trading particularly well right now. I'm with Carter. Rebecca, what do you think overall? Is transportation a harbinger of bad things to come? Well, I think the best trades are always when the fundamentals and technicals line up. So we've gotten the technical. On the fundamentals, what you're seeing is growth overseas, which is a big part of their business, slowing. China's struggling. We're going to get more data out of them tonight. Europe is likely at best to be flat this year, but most likely is going to slow further. And then at home, I think a data point that a lot of people missed today is we had a New York Fed survey on consumer spending. And when you look at what would people do if they got a chunk of new income, if they got a raise tomorrow, the amount of people saying they would spend that money declined to 16 percent. That's the lowest number since this survey started in 2015. So consumers pulling back slower overseas growth. I think that supports the technical case as well on these stocks. All right. There's an interesting trade developing there. Thanks very much, guys. Coming up next, your final trade. So keep it right here. All right, sports fans, it's time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim. Uh, Dom, thank you for joining us. Rebecca, always great to have you here. Uh, consumer staples, I think, are interesting for 24. I think STZ Constellation Brands sits at the top of that list. All right, Rebecca. I'm still worried about the smaller U.S. banks. I'm still a better seller of KRE. All right, Dan. Yeah, XBI and pullbacks. I think I'm a buyer. All right, and guys. For you Ranger fans out there, Tim Seymour will be at the Magic World tonight. Say hi. Buy him a beer. Uh, Gilead, as I mentioned earlier, I think it's going higher there, Dom, and thanks for joining us. Thank you guys very much for having me here, and thanks for watching Fast Money. We've got Mad Money with Jim Cramer coming up right now. We'll see you guys right back here tomorrow.
All opinions expressed by the Fast Money participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information the Fast Money participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Fast Money Disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Fast Money Disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.